The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Amy Ellis Nutt, author of Becoming Nicole, The Transformation of an American Family. This is the inspiring story of a transgender girl, her identical twin brother, and an ordinary American family's extraordinary journey to understand, nurture, and celebrate the uniqueness in all of us. And this is from Amy, the Pulitzer Prize-winning science reporter for the Washington Post. Welcome to the show, Amy. Nice to have you on this morning. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. How and why did you decide to write this story? Well, you know, I have to admit, this story sort of fell into my lap. Um, I I came to it in a roundabout fashion uh, through a mutual friend um, that I hadn't seen in 30 years, was working as their uh, lawyer, uh, a GLAD lawyer for the family, when they um, had to file a civil lawsuit against uh, the elementary school where uh, Nicole, the transgender child, um, was being uh, basically bullied and not protected uh, enough by the school. And um, their story had just come out um, in the Boston Globe, and they were being a bit inundated. This was December 2011 with media requests, and the family was very protective of their children. They had wanted to do that one story, but really wanted them to then sort of grow up, um, you know, being as, as normal as they could, as normal as family as they could. But they also recognized that they they wanted perhaps to eventually tell their story. So um, this you know, mutual friend reached out to me, and I, I met the family at uh, the very beginning of 2012 and you know, kind of fell in love with them, and we hit it off, and I realized that this was a very special story. And while I didn't know a lot about what it meant to be transgender, um, I realized that it was an important story to tell because of who these individuals in this family were, and, and, and also because of the, this extraordinary child, Nicole, who knew from the age of two exactly who she was and who she wasn't. Yeah. I think that's an important piece, but before we get into that, um, obviously the family had to approve of you. There had to be some kind of chemistry, at least that's what I hear you saying, between you and the family in order for them to allow you to write the story. Yes, and and obviously one of the one of the reasons that um, uh, that they were uh, you know more open to doing a book was with the caveat that this would not be something that would be published before the twins graduated from high school, um, and in fact it did come out you know their their freshman year in college, um, and so there was time both to sort of get to know one another, um, but also to watch 
the children progress and watch the family grow and things happen. And so it was a kind of long haul commitment. But, you know, right from the beginning, you know, when I first sat down in their living room and, you know, all of them were very open and very honest. And Nicole, um, most of all, this is a very outgoing kid. So even at the age of 13, 14, um, I remember asking her, so Nicole, tell me about what do you like to do when you're not at school? And it was immediately, I really like to make videos. Would you like to see them? And she plopped down on the couch next to me and started showing me videos. So, um, you know, it was, it was easy, um, and yet it was important that we, that we did have that chemistry, but this was a family that, that opened their, their arms and their hearts to me um, really quite remarkably. What I thought was interesting, and I think uh, you sort of alluded to that in the beginning, uh, at two years old, and I think there's a picture in the book of the twins when they're babies, actually, but at, at two, Nicole really had a sense of wanting to be a girl, of playing and wanting to have play with girls, you know, traditional girls' toys and dress like a girl. So it starts way back then, you know, that she felt like she was different than her, than her brother, than her twin brother. Um, and, and I think uh, I think that's a really important point because I think a lot of the controversy now with transgender and transgendered uh, kids is that oh somehow that they're confused and that they could uh, that, you know whether they're teenagers and perhaps this is something the phase that they're going through and I think your book really pointed out that that's not really the case. It's it's hugely important issue and I think people. I still get confused that this is sort of a, a psychological issue, that it's a, a lifestyle choice, that it's, um, uh, you know, uh, that it's something that can be, you know, affected, you can be affected by the environment or, you know, by a mother who, I mean, this is what they said in the 60s, by a mother who really wanted a daughter, not a son. And, and all of that, you know, is... Uh, all of that is, is sort of put to the lie by, by this family and, frankly, by, by almost any family where a child that young, um, and many of them do, identify as being transgender. Not all of them let it be known to their family. But this is a child at age two who, who doesn't have the language, doesn't have the ability to even understand what gender is, what gender identity is. She just knew she was a girl. I... I recently interviewed and did a story for the Washington Post about a 70-year-old trans woman who kept a secret from everyone, including his wife of 44 years at that point, um, about being transgender. And this is an orthopedic surgeon, a very accomplished uh, woman who, you know, was born with the anatomy of a boy and who, had, who said to me that at the age of three, didn't even know the difference between girls and boys, wasn't that interested in girls' things, but just fundamentally couldn't understand why people referred to him as a boy and treated him like a boy when he knew he was a girl. And he still, she still has trouble sort of understanding what it was that and how that she knew. But what science is telling us is that it's in the brain. Gender is in the brain. It's not in the body. Gender identity is something that happens in utero before we're even born. It's something that as a culture we find, I think, uh, a difficult concept to sort of grasp for some reason, uh, that it is in the brain. And I, I think that, obviously, I think that that's something really that has to be emphasized. 
Um, what is it, you know, this woman that you're talking about who's kind of lived her whole life not being able to be who she really is and to define who she is, what does that do? Just what does that do to a person when you have to live your life that way? Um, you know, you've yeah. had the, ex- yeah. The, I, you know, and obviously every, every story is different. Um, this was fairly exceptional because um, this was at age 70. So just this year, this person went through the surgical transition but only coming out, you know, she kept everything. She just thought never in her lifetime that she would go to the grave with this and felt all of her life that if anybody found out, including the wife um, to whom there was a chemical attraction as long ago as, as high school, they married before um, uh, Kate, previously Bill, was even graduated from college, um, deeply in love with one another, so she always felt that if she let this come out, she would lose, you know, the woman that she loved. She would lose her children. She would lose her job. And so felt forced to keep this as a secret and sacrificed everything. And what's remarkable is that this is, was such an extraordinary marriage and love story that when she finally told her wife, um, her, her wife's first reaction was to cry, thinking that this, what she thought, man that she loved her whole life had lived his whole life, you know, keeping this a secret. And they worked through it, and this was three years ago. She's been completely supportive, and they both say that their marriage has never been better. On their 50th wedding anniversary in two years, they plan to have a recommitment ceremony. So this is, this is a wife who says, I'm, you know, heterosexual, but it's not about sexual attraction, and it's not about gender even for her it's about this person that I love and how could I deny the chance for this person that I love to be who she really has always known herself to be hmm. so well, still- everybody travels a different a different journey yeah everybody does travel a different journey and I think if you juxtapose that with the story that you're telling in the coming Nicole it's completely different because here's a family who's as you is transforming the whole family's transforming from the very beginning so this is like the other side of that story kind of a 180 from the story you just told yeah um, yeah it's, so, it's completely different in I'm sorry no go ahead it's, it's completely different in, in, in so many ways. Obviously, it's a generational thing. And yet, when Nicole first lets it be known, she fundamentally, you know, you know, when do I get to be a girl? When does my penis fall off? She believed that like a, a chrysalis, that she was simply going to evolve into a girl. She didn't know, <laughs> you know, how these things work. And so part of it is, I think, this personality of this child was such that she just needed to let it be known, and it was also a product of a mother, because uh, the father, it took him a while, but a mother who just fundamentally, this was about two things for her children, how to make sure they're happy and safe. And so she never viewed Nicole, who had previously was Wyatt, never ne- viewed Nicole as having a problem, uh, or you know, just that she was different and was saying different things and she needed to figure it out and she began where so many people begin in this age of the computer by googling boys who like girls toys so and this as you say in this age we you know the advantages of the internet really obviously help this family but what were some of the would you say the most difficult issues that 
first she struggled with, Nicole's mother, from the beginning. Yes, I mean, as you're describing her, and obviously in the book, too, I mean, she's nurturing. She wants her her kids to be happy and healthy like any other mother does or most mothers Mm -hmm. want for their children. But how... What are her particular struggles? What would you say was the most difficult thing for her to do when she realizes that one of her boys uh, really identifies as a girl? I, I think, and I, I think Kelly would say this too, I, I think Kelly would say that the most difficult thing for her was, you know, this was um, in 1999, 2000, you know, it's only 15, 16 years ago, but it was a lack of resources, and it was a lack of... She had never heard the word transgender. She'd sort of heard the word transsexual, you know. Um, but she didn't know anything about it. And, you know, look, they were up in Orono, Maine. Although it's a college town, it's, it's all, you know, it's up in northern New England. Um, and so there weren't many people that she could turn to. And they, she sort of had to slowly discover her resources. And one of her chief allies um, became... Uh, Lisa Earhart, a wonderful um, guidance counselor at the middle school, but Lisa admitted right up front, gee, I really don't know anything about this, but I'm going to learn about it, and we'll, 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 we'll do this together, and we'll educate ourselves together. So I think it was, you know, finding the resources and, and educating herself, and then it was simply realizing that there were so many people along the way that also needed to be educated, and so she kept having to do that sort of over and over. For Wayne, the father, this was a man who had grown up in a small town in upstate New York. He was conservative, a Republican. He was an Air Force veteran. You know, he was a hunter, uh, fished. Uh, He had very traditional small-town values, and he had expectations and his expectations, and especially when you have twins and they're identical twin boys, and it's sort of like this surge of testosterone enthusiasm, oh my God, I can't wait till I buy them their first hunting rifles and their first fishing rods. And so for him, it was a constant, constant adjustment of expectations that frankly took about, you know, eight, nine, ten years. Um, but, you know, he's now a champion of, of both his children. Yep, so he was able to do it, and uh, obviously, and I, I think readers have to, uh, listeners have to read the book, but uh, the effect that it had on not only individually mother and father, but also on the marriage, and also on um, Nicole's twin brother. How did mm-hmm. he fit into the picture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was really important, you know, to tell his story as well. Um, you know... He, he was the one, in, in some ways, who, who recognized it without realizing that it was even a recognition, that knew that his brother was really his sister. And at a pretty young age, he knew his frustrations in his father. Um, and he said to his father once, when he was probably about you know, nine or ten, you know, Dad, face it, you, know, you have a daughter and a son, um, not two sons. Uh, and yet at the same time, you know, being a child... He was often the one who was more approachable with other kids. Nicole was very outgoing, very assertive. Jonas uh, is sort of much more, uh, you know, withdrawn and quiet. And so oftentimes, you know, friends, uh, acquaintances, you know, playmates would, would ask Jonas, so what's up, you know, with your brother or your sister? And Jonas said to me something really <laughs> profound out of the mouth of a 15, 16-year-old, and that is, 
you know, imagine what it's like to try and explain to people when all you have is the vocabulary of a sixth grader. And isn't, isn't that the case? And how self-aware that was. So, you know, and yet for him, he always felt he knew that his sister was a target and he was always told by his parents, you have to watch out for Nicole. So he was always very protective. So um, it was not, and, you know, and yet he's growing up, you know, and going through puberty. And it was not an easy journey for him either. Yeah, I sense from the the book, and, and maybe he said it, uh, that, you know, it was difficult, as you say, difficult, but there is some resentment, which one would understand, mm-hmm. of having to protect his sister all the time. And he's only 16 years old himself and struggling, mm-hmm. so that it's, um, there are very, I guess, a lot of mixed emotions in terms of, of their relationship, and I, I think you brought that out in the book. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, and I, there, there's so much in this story that I think many families, and, and I mean families that don't have a transgender child, can identify with, and that's, you know, on the one hand, then there's a lot of attention on a child, on one child, on Nicole, especially you know, when things happened in the fifth grade and she was bullied and the parents go into, you know, hyperdrive, especially Kelly, about protecting their child. And it all becomes about that child. And so naturally, you know, Jonas also felt left out. And yet he also felt the pressures at school, being protective um, and also being identifiable because, you know, he's an identical twin. So people know immediately um, so uh, it was it was fraught with with complexity for him, and yet, you know, uh, underneath everything in this story, and underneath all the trouble that Wayne, the father, had in coming around to this, there was never a doubt, never a doubt to me in the reporting of it, that this was a family that loved each other, um, and that and that that was always there. So that despite the problems, despite you know sense of alienation sometimes. They were always going to figure it out somehow. Um, it just took Wayne, you know, a lot longer uh, than he would have liked. Why do you think in, in, in the general in a culture, why do we have as a culture such difficulty accepting transgender people, transgender children? Where does that come from? You know, I think, I, th- I think it's a number of things. N- number one, who we are on the outside, what we look like, it, it's, you know, there's a reason that a third of our brain is given over to vision. <laughs> you know, what we see is very important for establishing our sense of reality. It's critical, always has been. And, and I think it's the first way we judge people. And transgender people, you know, obviously they're not, their gender identity in their brain is not in agreement with their body. And so the the, the drive for them is to make them consistent. And so what we see is, what, what we think we see is a man or a woman, and instead they want or believe that they're the opposite um, gender. And I think visually that can be difficult for people to understand and to take in. It's foreign. It's alien to, to most of us. It's becoming more familiar. And I think a lot of it has to do with that idea of familiarity. What we don't know, what we don't understand, what we rarely see, what we, you know, we, we push away and, um, and we find alienating. And I think that's why the importance of a story like Nicole's, um, you know, when you see her, I mean, she's a beautiful young girl, um, 
and she was able to have her change before, you know, puberty would devastate her. Um, and, you know, there's no... You, you meet Nicole and you realize, well, it would be ridiculous to send that girl into a boy's bathroom where, she, you know, it would be dangerous to her. And, you know, I think if people sat and they and they looked at these people or they met these people or they talked to them, they would understand they're just like you and I are. And, and that, you know, one of the, the fundamental misconceptions around, especially with these so-called bathroom bills, is this idea that, you know, somehow uh, a transgender person is going to expose themselves to someone else. The last thing that a transgender person wants is for anyone to see the parts of their body that don't, they don't feel belong to them. Nicole took showers in the dark, you know, when she was a teenager, so she wouldn't have to look at her body. Mm-hmm. This 70-year-old trans woman that I just wrote about for the Washington Post told me that she couldn't even look in the mirror to comb her hair because she didn't recognize that person physically for being who she felt she was inside. So... You know, it's a fundamental misconception that we just we make assumptions about about people and and their motivations that that are just you know completely unfounded. So, as a culture, it really comes as you're as you're describing it. It's it's really ignorance. It's really ignorance of not understanding and and knowing people who are transgender or families, which is exact. And I think your book is is wonderful because that's yeah. really what it's. This is a family, as you said before, who love each other, who struggle with different issues because of, of one of their twins who is transgender, but all the same issues that we all struggle with. And I think you make it really, yeah. uh, I, I hate the expression, really real, but th- that's exactly what you do. Uh, I, and I Catherine, think it also, I, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I, think you're, I think you're actually right. You know, when you use the word ignorance, and I want to be careful here, because, because I will put myself in that category. We're, we're all ignorant to a certain extent about things, about new things, certainly. I was ignorant about what transgender meant. And I'll give you an example. I, when I first heard the expression gender spectrum, I thought, well, that's a lovely metaphor, you know. And it sounds like, the, you know, it's nice, it's politically correct. Well, it wasn't until I did the research and I read the books and the articles and I, and I got into the science of it that I realized gender spectrum is exactly medically, scientifically what it is. Gender identity is a spectrum, and in fact, gender, sexual anatomy is a spectrum. None of it, we're not identical, and nor are we identical in how we identify ourselves. There are very few people that are 100% male and 100% female, really based on, you know, certain types of brain structures that we know generally will apply to women or to men. We're a mixture. So why wouldn't our gender identity sometimes be a mixture, too? And I think people fail to realize that there are dozens of, of genetic conditions in which certain switches go on or go off, in which chromosomally we may be not, you know, 100% male or 100% female either. So I think acknowledging, so I think understanding a little bit of the science and that gender identity is something that's in the brain and not in the body, I think helps to clear up ignorance, which is sometimes just a lack, just a lack of knowledge. Or also our own fears about our own ambivalence, about our own sexuality, as you're describing sure. it, because sexuality uh, is not uh, all or nothing. It's not in these little discrete categories, um, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of, of room for, um, 
for movement in terms of who we are sexually. And mm-hmm. I think that sometimes maybe that brings up some of those issues personally to each one of us, and, and that's our fear. You know, sure. people will say, like, you, you know, you're describing twins here, which is a whole other issue. We think of identical twins as identical twins. So how does this happen? How does one twin identify as a male and the other one identify as a female if they're identical? Like, what is the yeah. genetics surrounding that? Yeah, it's, it's, this, um, it's this middle ground. What, what we've learned, what science has learned in the last 20 years is it's not just nature versus nurture. It's not just genes versus environment. But rather, there's this understanding that environment can actually affect genes. And that's a field called epigenetics. And so we, we not only have a genome, our DNA, our chromosomes, but we have an epigenome. In other words, we have, you know, thousands and thousands of genes attached to each of our DNA. Not all of those genes activate that DNA. Some switches are turned on. Some of our DNA is turned on. Some of our DNA is turned off. It's why we have variety in medical conditions, in personality, in, in everything. So for identical twins, you know, their, their early, you know, genetic markers for how they look physically, you know, have all been turned on. But your brain is masculinized or feminized at a different time in utero than when your sexual anatomy is set. And what, what science has discovered is that even for twins, even where you're positioned in the womb, even identical twins have separate umbilical cords to the mother. So essentially they're getting separate nutrients, therefore separate hormones, therefore separate chemical messengers, messengers that activate switches in the brain, in the developing brain. And they've discovered that depending upon where you are in the womb, you're, you may be getting different amounts and at a different time of those same messengers as um, as your identical twin. So even the environment of the womb, but also everything a mother eats or drinks or breathes can, uh, can cause some genetic proteins to switch DNA on or off. And because you're having two umbilical cords, those messages can be different depending upon you know, your position in the womb uh, or the time of the... Um, development in utero. So, you know, we should also realize, yeah, identical twins look exactly alike, but they don't die of the same diseases. They don't have exactly the same personalities. Many times they do. Uh, Nicole and and Jonas have very similar sort of speech patterns and rhythms. Um, You know, a lot of, of it is the same, but their personalities are also very, very different. In some ways, this family turns everything about gender on its head. Jonas is, you know, Nicole Feely admits is much more sensitive than she is. And she's sort of much more of the aggressive, sort of the stereotypical, you know, personality differences um, of male and female. I think what science is telling us that's really, really important in this is that transgender isn't about aberration. It's about variation. And that nature favors diversity it's society that favors conformity. Well, that's well said. That's, that's, we only have a couple minutes left, and that's a, a really a, a good note to, to leave on, but um, diversity. Uh, I have one last question. I, I don't know if you have time to answer it, but this whole idea, uh, you know, with the transgendered, transgender kids, uh, taking hormones you mentioned earlier, like, for instance, to prevent puberty, which would have been devastating, uh, for Nicole to to um, 
have the characteristics of mm-hmm. a grown male, but the what you know maybe what you know when you take these very strong drugs, what the implications mm-hmm. for that are or will be for some of uh, of these of these kids. Well, you know what? It, we don't know. Um, I mean, we're going to be finding that out. We, we certainly, there have been many other conditions in which people from a very young age have had to take hormones. So we do have people that we've been able to study. I think the important thing to know about the puberty suppressants is that the reason that they are given is to buy time for that child to absolutely make sure that the gender transition is what they want to do. That's why they're given the puberty suppressants, so that they don't go through puberty and then, you know, it's so much more difficult to transition psychologically and certainly physically. So Nicole didn't have to go through growing a beard or the, the bones in her face getting broader and thicker, you know, and getting taller and her voice deeper. And it's buying a child time to know, to go through all the psychological tests, to, to live like the, like the gender identity you believe you are, to see if that's exactly right. And 99% of the time, these children uh, are, are happy that, with, with their choice and what they've done. Um, so the, the puberty suppressants is a way to protect the child in order to make sure that this is right. Not all children, you know, who act, you know, feminine, boys who act feminine or girls who act male, are going to grow up to be transgender. And that's the other lesson from this. So this is all about making absolutely sure. Well, there's so much for us to learn, and I want to recommend your book, Becoming Nicole, The Transformation of an American Family, a terrific book. Uh, it talks about what we've been talking about on the show and obviously uh, introduces us to a lot more. Um, Amy, what website can we go to to get more information about you and the book? Um, amynutt.com, uh, and you can certainly buy the book on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And uh, don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Wendy Paris, author of Split Opia, Dispatches from Today's Good Divorce and How to Part Well. Good divorce, that's the key. Wendy Paris is a journalist and personal essayist whose marriage or whose work on marriage, relationships, and divorce has appeared in the New York Times, Psychology Today, the New York Observer, and I could go on and on. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on the show this morning, Wendy. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, I first, I'll preface it by saying I've been divorced, so I've been there, so I really get what you're saying. Uh, and divorce, it still has, there's still a you know, good divorce. What are you talking about? How can there possibly be a good divorce? No, it's true. It's it's funny. I, I look at the um, variety of family structures in, in the United States and around the world today and the you know, the interview you just did, how how um, many changes we've seen and what constitutes a normal, you know, a quote unquote normal family. And I think of divorce, if you get married and you get divorced, this seems like a relatively conservative path compared to, you know, what so many other people are doing. Today we have like fifty percent of babies in the US are born to unmarried parents. You know, the, the average family next door might be a transgender family. It might be, um, you know, two men living together, two women living together. It might be a family headed by a single parent. So I see getting divorced as really a rather conservative choice, but um, in some ways it's been re-stigmatized, particularly among the, you know, the more educated um, classes that, that there's a sense that you want to be perfect at everything. And so if you've failed to hold your marriage together, you know, this is, this is like failing to secure a good job. There's, there's talk about a, a marriage divide now that, you know, marriage has become almost a luxury good, you know, among the, for the, for the, the well-to-do and the well-educated. So, you know, divorce sort of gets um, wrapped up in a lot of other social issues and social concerns or the discussion around divorce gets wrapped up in other social concerns. So what you're saying, Wendy, is, well, we get it re-stigmatized. That word is kind of like resonating. Divorce is re-stigmatized. We are stigmatized if we get divorced. So you're, if you stay in your marriage, you're successful, and if you don't, then you're a failure. I mean, I was surprised. I was surprised by this because you know, my husband and I decided to split up in 2011. We were going to do a trial separation. You know, we we were in agreement about this, and we hadn't been so happy in our marriage. And I, you know, I'm not one of those people who can keep my feelings to myself. So everybody knew this, and so I thought our friends would say, you know, oh, okay, you're going to do a separation. That's a good idea. You know, finally. And um, I know I write about this in my book. I thought they would bring over champagne and chocolate truffles, you know, or at least <laughs> express relief. But they didn't, you know. They, and these, my, these are my friends. This was New York City. They were in their 40s. Many of them had never been married. And the feedback I got, you know, was things like, 
maybe you're just unhappy in your career, you know, or a, um, a happily married female friend said to me, I know a number of women your age who are single and they have been unable to meet someone new. This could happen to you too. You know, it was this kind of thing. You know, our son was going to be destroyed. I would be broke. I'd be too destitute to work. And I was really surprised by this kind of reaction because my parents uh, got divorced when I was five. This was 1973 when divorce really was new. And, you know, there was a great deal of stigma around it. And I didn't see this as a tragedy. You know, my parents didn't fight. It wasn't some horrible thing. And I, I was offended growing up by the occasional reaction of, you know, other parents' friends like, oh, your parents are divorced. You know, you, like, poor you. And I, you know, and this could come from parents and, uh, you know, married parents in households that had far more problems than ours did. You know, family life is hard. You know, there's lots of problems in households, but divorce is not the only problem. So, I was surprised by the negative reaction of my friends and began to investigate. And that sort of led to the, the research that led to this book. You know, I wanted to know where is it coming from? What are they so worried about? You know, what are they reacting to? And part of it was, um, you know, the facts of an earlier era. Part of it was genuine bias in the media. And then there's this piece, this re-stigmatization, the sense of like, we have to do everything just right. So, you know, if you buy, a, a, if you give your baby apple juice out of a bottle that might be leaching BPAs, you know, this is a terrible thing. Well, divorce must be worse. You know, it's sort of in the kind of perfectionistic parenting that, you know, comes this idea of like, oh, you know, your, your, your child is not going to the best school. Your child's not going to go to Harvard. Your parent, your child has divorced parents. You know, there's some, some of that. It's almost a, almost like a materialistic competitive, um, you know, need to, to have everything be perfect. Well, you redefined it, and I think the words that you used as family reorganization, which sounds a lot better than divorce, and divorce is sort of equated with broken home and the, ch- and the children's horrible things are going to happen to the children. I mean, I, I got divorced in the early 90s after having been married for 20 years, three kids. Wow. Uh, yeah, and it was this, and it still felt the stigma. You know, you're talking about your parents in the 70s, um, and, uh, you know, when I take a look, you know, what is it going to do to the children? Well, my three boys are doing great. They have good relationships. And I look at some of these, you know, this is anecdotal, of course, but friends who stayed married, uh, who had not good marriages and some of the stuff that happened to their children. So, you know, it's, it, it, I, I, it, that stigma still remains, but it's not really based in reality in terms of what happens to the family and, and the kids. But I want to address some of the things that you talk about in the book, because, as a culture, things have changed. Women work. Uh, there are things that, that that you have a lot more opportunities. First of all, just as a woman, if you get divorced, there are just cultural things that have changed that have made it possible. Uh, you don't necessarily have to go through some horrific court battle. There's mediation. Let's talk about some of those, you know, very kinds of specific practical things that have changed in terms of when one gets divorced. Right. You just said two really important things. So one is society and one is law. And, the, you know, the one has affected the other. But, right, when my parents got divorced, uh, there was not no-fault law. We were in Ohio. The first no-fault law passed and went into effect in California in 1970. Ohio did not have no-fault um, almost none of the other states had no fault yet. So on the legal side, before no fault law, you could not get divorced unless you could go to court and prove that your spouse had hit you or committed adultery or committed a felony. The exact terms were different in the individual states, you know, because divorce is state is state law is governed by the states. But you could not get divorced unless basically your spouse had committed a crime. And so what was happening in the 70s as 
women started wanting to work and being able to work, um, and people, men and women, started wanting more out of their marriages. Uh, people were lying in court to get out of to get out of a marriage. Like the only way you could do it was either to prove your spouse was a reprobate and that you had done nothing to provoke it, or you would lie in court. So um, legal scholars started to really worry about this making a mockery of the courts. And I have in my book, you know, in New York, a couple might hire a friend or, you know, hire an actress to come to the house and pose as a mistress. So then the woman could go to court and say, I caught him in bed with this woman. Um, in California, cruelty could be grounds. And there's this famous quote of a, a Judge Stanley Mosk, you know, saying every day in the family court, there's the same charade. Your wife comes in and she's sobbing and blowing her nose and describing the cruelty. So that was the only way you could get divorced. No fault um, created the ability to get divorced merely because you were miserable, right? Merely because you were of irreconcilable, irreconcilable differences or the, ir, um, the, the irremediable breakdown of the marriage. You know, the language is different, but basically you could get divorced because the marriage wasn't working. And so that led to the creation of mediation uh, and something called collaborative divorce. And these are both methods where you're working with a professional to help you figure out how are you going to restructure your life without the marriage part? How are you together going to going to um, figure out what to do with your money, where you're going to live, how you're going to raise your children, but you're doing that together as opposed to against each other. So this is a sea change in the, the reality of divorce and, and also our perception of divorce. And, you know, I talk about in my book, even if you're just making it up, if you're you know, rehearsing in your head, you know, he did this, he did that, this kind of, you know, we know a lot more about how the brain works and psychology today and this kind of rehashing, rumination, um, you know, going over and over in your head, the bad things he did to me, this kind of creates its own reality and it's, it's dangerous. So the court in effect kind of mandated what cognitive behavioral therapists today would call distorted thinking. So that's saying a lot, but basically the laws today allow you to restructure your marriage or um, a law professor at Hofstra talks about it as that we look at divorce almost like a bankruptcy, like the marriage has gone bankrupt and we need to restructure the marriage so that both parties are left whole and can function. That's a very different way of looking at it than this is a crime for a punishment. Yep. I think our definitions are, are, it's very important to define the things accurately and they are very different today as you're describing in the book. Let's talk about, like, give us specific examples because I know that that's really helpful in terms of, you know, you have obviously a lot of them in the, in your book in, uh, Splitopia, but let's talk about specific examples of, of good divorces. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. I was just thinking, you know, a specific example of the, this, this mediation process. Um, if you don't mind, let me, let me, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of that. I sat in on a mediation um, in, in Denver. There's something called the uh, Center for Out-of-Court Divorce, uh, which is in Denver, and there's an effort to make this a national movement and um, where you handle all of the, the logistic, the emotional, um, the parenting problems outside of court. You know, you get help from a therapist, from a mediator, and you work it out together. So I sat in on a mediation session, and this was so interesting to me. It was a, a firefighter, and um, uh, the woman had an office job. And he was wanted more, um, more, more time with the children. They were working on their parenting plan, and he wanted more nights with the children. And in the old model, he would have gone to court to fight for more nights with the children in front of the judge. But 
what, what was happening was he didn't want to pay as much child support as he would have had to, according to state laws, if, if his wife had the children, say, 70% of the time. He didn't have the money. He was worried about money. He didn't really want more nights. He couldn't quite. His schedule didn't accommodate more nights. He just didn't want to have to pay as much child support. So in a mediated, you know, non-hostile, collaborative process, they were able to sit down and say, oh, okay, so this is really about money. Well, how can we make, have it so that you could pay a little less, but, you know, I, Jane, the wife, still, still can, you know, pay my bills and have enough money for the kids. So they came up with a system where he would pick the kids up after school on his days off. He would handle dinner more often. He would pay her less than the state mandated, um, but, but do some in-kind support. So this was so great to see, you know, the two of them together saying, oh, okay, he doesn't really have enough money to do what the state says he should do, and I don't want you know, him to be under financial duress, and I don't want him to go broke trying to give me money, and I don't want our, child, our children you know, swapping back and forth in a situation that doesn't really work for him, it doesn't work for me, it doesn't work for the kids, you know, it's just that he needs to pay less money. So they were able to work that out, and if you're not if you don't have the specter of, you know, we're going to go to court and fight it out, if you don't have that looming over your head because you've agreed to mediation or you've agreed to this thing called collaborative law, then you could sit down together and honestly say, I really don't want to pay that much money. What are our other options? So that, to me, I thought was a great, you know, it was a great model. Um, yeah, I, I write about in my book, um, I, I got sort of interested in this idea because I met a woman who was going to France with her daughter and her ex-husband. And uh, my husband and I were still, were still married, and I was, you know, wishing we weren't. And, you know, I was looking at her and saying, wait, you can go to France with your ex-husband? Like, where do I sign up? I'd like to have that kind of divorce because, I, <laughs> you know, I like, I like the man I married. It just it was not working as a marriage. And so I follow her story. Um, I use the name Zoe in the book, and I follow her story. And um, this is so interesting to me because it wasn't like – Oh, they together decided to have this amicable divorce. He had an affair with a woman in France and didn't want to end it. And she uh, started seeing a therapist, and she was really, um, really struggling. And at one point, you know, she said she felt like she wanted to walk in front of a truck. Like, this was not her choice. This was not what she wanted to have happen. And at one point, her therapist gave her a rubber band to wear on her wrist. It's just something that, um, you know, this is a thing that, this is a therapy intervention for people who are having negative rumination and all kinds of things. And when she started to have that feeling of, I'm just going to walk in front of a truck, she was supposed to snap that rubber band against her wrist and, you know, use that to remind her to snap her thoughts out of that, you know, out of that sort of channel and onto something more positive. So she, she had worked, you know, incredibly hard to get past this, um, you know, really, really painful and difficult split for the sake of her daughter. And she said that her own parents had had this horrible divorce and wouldn't talk to each other, couldn't talk to each other, and she didn't want her own daughter to feel pulled. So she created this really nice relationship with her former husband who spends part of the time in France and comes in, you know, to spend time with her daughter, and they go to France in the summer. And this was also important um, because she had lived in France, and you know, she's an American, she had lived in France, and part of her identity was being able to go to France and she didn't want the fact that her marriage ended. She had married a French man. He had had an affair in France. She didn't want that to take away from her something that was part of her identity too, her love for France. So by being able to get over the hurt and prioritize her daughter's well-being and her daughter's having a good relationship with both parents, by being able to do that, that enabled her to go back to Paris, um, you know, go back to the South of France, have that be part of her own life. 
and not have to let go of that out of anger and hurt. Well, let's talk about, it kind of brings up this topic, which you discuss in the book, but talking to children about divorce, because that's a big thing. Even though you, uh, maybe the two, the parents can both agree they both want a divorce, and, and it's, it isn't a big, it's always an issue, but it's something that they feel that they can do um, do well. But at the same time, you have one, two, three, whatever children. How do you address that with the children? Because they're going to feel very differently about it. And that's that's a whole other part of a divorce. So let's talk about the kids. What do you suggest for that to make it a more? Yeah. yeah. This is right. This is a huge thing. One thing is um, one of the therapists I interviewed said that kids don't like this term good divorce. You know, this was her take that they don't like this term good divorce. They don't think it's good. I don't know if that's true across the board, but it it's it's a good thing to keep in mind, you know, just because it's good for us doesn't mean it's their choice, you know, and this is happening to them. This is being visited, visited upon them. I, I interviewed, you know, many teenagers who said my parents' divorce was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. So the idea that all kids want their parents together at all times isn't true, but you know, probably most do. So, um, I have tips for telling the kids. Uh, one big thing is to tailor for their age. And what this means is, you know, it means a couple things. You, you don't, you know, you don't want to give kids the whole truth, right? Kids don't need to know. He had an affair. They don't need to know. We haven't had sex in four years. You know, they, they, they do not need to know this. What they need to know is how your divorce is going to affect them. So, um, you know, you really want to emphasize. But, but when what I, have, I just have to, inter- uh, to interrupt because they do sometimes, depending, as you said, on where they are developmentally in terms of their age, but sometimes they actually do want to know, so why are you getting a divorce? And, you know, maybe it's very obvious that one of the other of the, of the parents have been having an affair. Um, and so how do you, do you talk about right. it? Do you, uh, yeah, right. Go ahead. Right, especially with teenagers, right? They really may know. They may know. So, um, you know, one thing is you don't need to elaborate, right? If, if, and, and one of the, you know, I, I interviewed this um, child psychiatrist, Mark Banchik, and he talks a lot about the intergenerational um, barrier or boundary that kids deserve their innocence and that teenagers can look very sophisticated, very mature. So you think that they, you know, that they can handle a lot more information than they probably can. And even if they've heard that there's been an affair, you know, the way I say it is, you know, you don't invite your kids to watch you having sex, right? It's, you know, they don't want to see it. It's, it's, it's gross. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to see it. And so giving them too many details is very similar. But you can say something like, um, you know, my job here is to make sure you're happy not to criticize mommy. So I'm not going to elaborate on this. Um, you know, you can, you can set a boundary. You can say, I, I, you know, I'm interested also in the case where there's mental illness and it's obvious to the kids, right? And again, it's like there's some way of saying, um, you know, we know daddy's having some problems. We're working it out. He loves you. I love you. You're safe. Uh, we're protecting you. I'll give you more information as we have more information. But right now I want to focus on where you're going to live. You know, let's, Let's make sure, you know, you understand how the schedule is going to work and, and bring the focus back to them. So, you know, this is not a, this is not a, you know, a super clear answer, but you want to just keep in mind, I would say, err on the side of innocence while trying to really be honest. You know, you do, you do want to, you don't want to say, oh, I love your daddy. He's the greatest thing. If in fact you are, you know, roiling with anger because they're going to see that. So it's some balance of protecting your innocence and acknowledging you know, acknowledging their feelings. So another way might be that, you know, one parent has had an affair, it's obvious. It might even be just saying, you know, yeah, I know it must be, you know, hard for you to have to hear this, you know, or I'm sorry that you're 
having to be exposed to this. Um, you know, we've been having some troubles. We're working it out. Um, you know, the marriage, we're going to get divorced. You know a little bit what's been going on. I'm not going to elaborate. I'm sorry that, you know, that you're seeing this. You know, maybe when we're older, we'll talk about it some more. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going back, you know, many years. I had quite a few years, many, many years. But anyway, I did. I had. I remember I had a girlfriend whose father was having a, an affair with his secretary, and her parents eventually got divorced. But she came to me and said one of the other kids at school had said to her, you know, your father's having an affair with his secretary. So my friend came to me at age 10 or 12 to get advice, yeah. which I didn't have the best advice. I mean, I didn't know what to say, but it was out there, you know, and it was something that her parents wouldn't talk to her about. I'm just sort of presenting all these, you know, there are lots of obviously different scenarios, but uh, it was devastating to her because she heard it from, you know, she heard it from someone else and she heard it from another kid who was teasing her about it. So, um I don't it's hard. know. It's yeah. hard. You know, yeah. I, yeah I, so my sister um, is three years older than I am, and she heard that our parents were getting divorced from a friend of hers, and she heard it from the friend before she heard it from my parents. And she still talks about this as, you know, this devastating thing. So one thing that I say is that you really want to let your kids know before you start talking to your friends who may have kids who overhear it. You know, to whatever you want to... You know, it would be much better if this didn't come from a third party. You know, the situation with your friend, it's also very much about the social circle and, um, you know, the stigma and, you know, what does this say about your parents? So as much as you, the parents, can kind of hold the information in um, and say, you know, it would create a sense of stability, um, the more you can talk positively about the other parent, the less there is this leaking sense of my family is crumbling and there's something wrong or off about us. I think that's a good idea. That's that's really good advice, you know, to share with your children before. And I think the ten, before you start sharing it with your girlfriends and, and other people, like to keep it within the family in the sense that the kids have a, a, a heads up so that they aren't hearing it from yeah. somebody else yeah. from, or yeah, somebody you know, else's gossip. Yeah. Once, 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 if, you know, once somebody's having an affair in this kind of public way when other people know about it, they're, you know, they're, they're, it's gotten a little bit out of control, right? Like, the, you know, the marriage is breaking down. The adult is not behaving in a way that is, that is totally, um, you know, in control anyway. So there is a messiness there. I mean, that's already that situation is unrolling in a, in a way. But, you know, maybe you can, you can step in and try to curtail, you know, try to curtail the damage or coordinate off. Another thing that, that – um, it is important when we talk about tailoring to their age, which I found this really helpful, is to try to use language that they can relate to. Um, and, you know, with teenagers, you can sort of figure out where, where their head is by the music they're listening to, you know, the, the TV shows they're watching or the games they're playing. With littler kids, you know, it's in the, the you know, the play, the make-believe. One of the women in my, in my book um, had a garden, had a roof garden in Manhattan, and she brought her daughter up and said, you know, we've got tarragon and mint, and you know that these two plants don't do well when they're in the same pot, right? Mint is more aggressive, and it kind of takes over, and the tarragon will, will wilt. And Daddy and I are like, we're like tarragon and mint. We do very well in separate pots, but we don't work well in one pot, so we're going to be living in separate pots. And I talked to the daughter when she was 18 or 19, and she repeated the story to me, and she said it really made sense to me. You know, we'd always been gardening. I could see how different plants didn't, some work, you know, some needed sun, some needed shade, and it was a natural thing for these plants, and it made sense to me that my parents were just different plants. 
Um, so that's, you know, that's one way. Another, um, a man in my book um, who had primary custody of his two boys got into cooking and taught them to cook and they would be cooking. And he said, you know, during cooking, when they were all cooking, this was a great time to talk to the kids, not necessarily, you know, the conversation we're going to have divorce, but the ongoing conversation, how are you doing? What's it like over when you, you know, when you visit mommy, how, you know, what's happening with your friends, but these conversations were easier to have when they were cooking because you're focused on something else. All right. Uh, so, Wendy, all right. We, I, you know, I hate to uh, say goodbye so quickly, but we have like about a minute left, and I just want to make sure that everybody knows uh, the website they can go to to get more information about your book because we've talked, you know, we've touched on what uh, topics in the book, but there's a lot more to talk about, a lot more to read. So your website about you and about the book, where can we go? Yes, it's wendyparis.com. And you can get all the information about the book there, wendyparis.com. And the book is available, um, you know, in all bookstores and Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. Terrific. Great. Great having you on the show today. Lots of good information. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zox Show, or you have been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management. The-